0: But there's another principle operating on a deeper level that tends to support and reward people who are deeply giving of their gifts to the world. Not always. It's not a guarantee. But in general, it's like a metaphysical principle because we are here to serve life and beauty on earth.
1: That's
2: Charles Eisenstein, author and public speaker, discussing what often happens when we step out of a transaction economy that prices goods and services and into a gift economy that's relational and circular. This is the Becoming Denizen podcast. I'm your host and curator, Jenny Stefanati. Today's episode explores gift economics, a radically different model of economics than capitalism, which dominates today. In this model, goods and services aren't priced, they're given away, and in many cases, the consumer of the good or services opts into paying at a price that is determined at their discretion. Gift economies were the dominant form of exchange in many indigenous cultures. My guest for this conversation is Charles Eisenstein, author and public speaker, who's written several books. In particular, the ones that have really impacted me are The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible and Sacred Economics. He's a very influential thinker in the scope of the Denizen Inquiry. I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with his work. And in this conversation, we focus on gift economics, something he talks about a lot in Sacred Economics and something that he has employed in his professional model in order to align with the more beautiful world his heart knows is possible. So in this episode, we cover what a gift economy is, why we both believe it addresses some of the issues with capitalism how it establishes something that is relational and circular instead of transactional, how it relates to the way nature operates, why putting a price on something changes how we orient towards it, and Charles' experience stepping into the model. As always, you can dive deeper into this topic on our website, www.becomingdenizen.com. There you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter. This is a particularly important topic for us to cover in our initial set of episodes because alongside the launch of our podcast, Denizen is itself implementing a gift model, which has always been the obvious way for me in my mind, to formalize Denizen in a way that aligns with our values and also just retained something that's made it really special from the beginning. And so that means that our content and community offerings will always be free, but we are opening a channel for our community and audience to reciprocate. And that will enable us to continue to create this kind of content for the community and the world. We've written a blog post about this on our Medium publication. So if you'd like to dig deeper on our thinking behind this, you can find it there. Okay. I hope you enjoy this episode with Charles. Charles Eisenstein, I feel like you need no introduction. I was always really compelled by your perspective on the the narrative that's underlying what the institutions are coming from. For those of you who have not read Charles' books, I very highly encourage it. I started with The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible which I think is a really wonderful, deep context, and there's so many pieces of that that have influenced me that I want to touch on today. And then I really blazed through sacred economics over the summer, which really crossed a lot of T's and dotted a lot of I's in the deep economics inquiry that we've been on for a long time. So there's so much to talk about. I'm just really thrilled to host you today. And I wanted to start off and anchor our conversation talking about the gift and gift economies, because I think part of what has made Denizen so special is that it's been a gift. It's just an a passionate project of mine that has really been fueled by appreciation from the community. And I've been thinking very, very, very deeply about how to formalize it in a way that is aligned with the future that we're exploring and interrogating in the conversations, because it's really imperative for me that we embody it in everything that we do. And in thinking about monetization, the instinct was always to do something around a gift, to not corrupt the specialness of what we've created. And so that's how we're kicking off monetization. It will continue to be a gift, but if people choose to reciprocate financially, that will be a first revenue stream for us and a way to really move on to the next phase, because I really feel like this is something that we're all doing together. And when I read Sacred Economics, and when I got into the content on the gift course that you did, a lot of that stuff really landed in a deep, deep way. And so I wanted to start talking about that. One of the really potent things that I've seen in your thinking was really the articulation that the world is a gift. And I'd love to hear you say a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah. So first, I just want to say, like, when people talk about digital commerce and monetizing and things like that, there's kind of this preconception that, well, I can't give it by gift. I can't do it by gift. I can't do without paywalls or do without advertising or do without upselling or do without some financialization because I have to make money. And what I've been trying to communicate and have practiced for many years now is that those two things do not have to be in conflict. Use a gift model to run a business and still do well financially. And the reason is because when people feel gratitude, they naturally want to give. In fact, that's almost what gratitude is. It's the desire to give in turn. It's the knowledge of having received and the desire to give forward from what you have received. And this is, so to answer your question, like this is fundamental to the human being, because on some level, we all know that life itself is a gift, that we didn't earn our existence here. We didn't earn our mothers taking care of us. We didn't earn the sun or water or the processes of life or the ability of seeds to grow. We didn't earn any of these things. They were given to us, which means that we are, by default, when we're aware of this, in a state of gratitude and that's where I get my ideas about things like right livelihood and so forth. It's just an enactment of something that is true in the human being. Mm -hmm. Or you could say it's the purpose why we're here. It's to give. It's to offer something or to participate in a creative process bigger than ourselves. So that philosophical or, or metaphysical idea surfaces in the way that I do business Mm -hmm. and the course you talked about the living in the gift course part of that is a training to help others practice the same model and I'll just finish it's not the reason to do it is not so that you can believe yourself to be a selfless virtuous good person like don't be in the gift to be good It should be something that feels natural and right and joyous and practical, actually, in a certain sense, practical. So I'll I'll stop there, but, you know, I could talk a lot more about it.
2: Well, there's a lot to dig into. But I I thought that that first point that just if you think deeply about life itself as a gift and the default state of gratitude, that was a first really potent point that I got out of the course. But the other one is that you just touched on. And also, Charles, you know, I, I read all of this and then I went to Burning Man, I think for the 15th time this year, right? And having an embodied experience with that deeper intellectual foundation of understanding really shot me out of the canon on this stuff. And the thing that you said that I thought was so compelling is that when you, you just said it again, you naturally want to give it in return. Right. So that reciprocity, I think that reciprocity that gets induced from gratitude is really, really potent, which then induces a sort of circularity. And you had something to say about that, and particularly with respect to building community.
0: Okay. Yeah. So one thing about generosity is that it's contagious. So if you act upon your gratitude, if you're in touch with your gratitude and you act upon it, then you become generous because you want to give in turn. When other people receive generosity or witness generosity, then it reminds them that, like, yeah, I don't have to be so tight. Mm. The world is not actually a dog-eat-dog competition, a war of each against all, a headlong competition for self-interest. Because here, this person isn't acting that way. And so it gives license to depart from that Modern standard of selfishness also when you have a group of people who are all being generous to each other Then you have community in which every Person in the community kind of feels like they're in debt Mm -hmm. To the rest of the community they have received so much and they have given so much as well Which means everybody feels like they're in debt to them as well. Mm -hmm. Now. This is a bit of a idealization In a real life community, there are some people who are more and less generous. And if you don't meet the expectations for generosity, then people might start to shun you. So it it gets very complicated, and I don't want to make it into a fairy tale. It is like shifting into a different reality. And I find that the more that I trust people to be generous, the more generous that they are.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And it takes the form of, of signals, like, for example, If I am describing the gift model for, say, an online course, and I say you can pay whatever feels good and right to you, and if I slip in there even the slightest amount of guilting, and this course costs a lot of money to make, something along those lines. We put a lot of work into it, Mm. or comparable courses cost hundreds of dollars. Like, if I put in any kind of levering of the reader, Mm. then they feel that energy. And we are dumped back into an oppositional relationship where I don't really trust their generosity. So I'm trying to manipulate them a little bit. I'm trying to pressure them. To the extent that I pressure them, I'm not actually in the reality of, yeah, people want to give. And when I am in that reality, I'm so fully in it and so confident in it that I'm like, oh, gosh. I don't want people to feel obligated to give because what if it's their grocery money? Mm. I better assure them that zero is welcome. We'll be fine. And it is, seems a little counterintuitive, but I don't know. Here I am doing okay.
2: Well, I think it, so one of the things that really struck me, and this is what formed my early beliefs about our own monetization model was Kate Raworth in Donut Economics talks about how putting a price on things crowds out intrinsic and altruistic motivations. She gives this example, I'm sure you're familiar with it, the the preschool in Israel with the late pickups, right? Yes, yes. And so I think that the sense of what you call guilting, right, the sense of levering, or it's almost like a hint at pricing, right? Like hints at that crowding out of that that instinct. I am really curious about, I'm thinking about this a lot though, and I'm sure you thought deeply about this. You're hinting at it here because then you throw in the behavioral economics piece. Right, because I'm thinking deeply about well, how do I frame and articulate this? And you seem to be indicating that you don't anchor people at all in what might be the right price and you just completely leave it to them to to assess.
0: Yeah. No, I'm I like it depends. If it's an online course, I'll say pay hey, what feels good and right and respects your financial means. Maybe you will reference other courses that are comparable. Maybe you will just pick a number that feels good. If it's zero, please trust that instinct. You see, because the thing is, in a robust gift culture, if you, say, go to the village herbalist and, and get some herbs, or go to the shaman and get a spell or something like that, like there's a pretty good cultural understanding of what might be the appropriate gift. Gift relationships are incredibly elaborate and guided by all kinds of customs and considerations, it's not like you're not operating without context. Yeah. And today, because we're so divorced from gift culture, mm-hmm. maybe some guidance is necessary. Maybe you need to tell a little bit of the story about how this came about and why you're doing it and what it's for. And yeah, I don't think that you necessarily have to leave people completely in the dark.
2: Mm. Well, you also say if on the back end you feel differently like with the course, right? You can assess it on the front and on the back end, you feel differently, you can recalibrate that.
0: Yeah. For a lot of digital goods, there is, according to traditional economics, there is no natural price point. Right. Because the marginal cost of production is zero. Like it doesn't cost me anything. I mean, if, if we're having breakout rooms and we need volunteers and stuff but generally speaking it doesn't cost me anything if one more person downloads yeah. my course or subscribes to my substack yeah so if the marginal cost of production is zero the natural price point is zero as well like it's to my financial advantage to sell it to you for 1 cent yeah so that's one reason why i think that this is the natural business model for digital goods because otherwise, you have to establish artificial scarcity with paywalls and digital rights. Yeah, sure. With
2: something called an NFT.
0: Right. All of these are a way to like, it's like this panic.
2: Right. At abundance. Right. 100%. But
0: every software, music, movies, all of these things could be completely free and abundant and should be in a certain sense. Like we are yeah. at the brink of the age of abundance, but we're resisting it yeah. because of the the legacy economic system and the legacy psychology around that economic system and what i'm saying is you can step out of that and you'll be fine yeah i remember i I used this app called night eye for my computer because the blue light like really makes me sick so i have this like makes all websites dark with white letters it's really great for me and so then like i had the yearly subscription and i decided to upgrade to a lifetime subscription and they're like, yeah, here's the discount code for your upgrade. And I'm like, I wrote back, I said, I don't want a discount. I want to pay full price for such an excellent plugin. And like, they like wrote back, like, mm. kind of like in this, in shock. But also they, they said like, that really warms our hearts. And so that's an example of like, yeah, I want to pay. When I enjoy something really good, Yeah, I'm like, even if I know that the producer is rich, like it's like an amazing artist or musician, and I can get the album for free. I'm like, no, I want to pay. I want to show you my appreciation. Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's interesting that, well, you said a couple of things that I thought were really interesting as well. The feeling that everyone everyone always feels in debt to one another. Because I mentioned this over the weekend. I said, I haven't earned a cent from the work that I've done. And it's been a lot of work. And I (laughs) frankly feel overcompensated just by the tokens of gratitude that have been pouring forth consistently for so long. You also said something, I think, really important about how you don't have to be so tight. And I think that that speaks to knowing that when the time comes, your needs will be met by the community versus needing to hoard everything for yourself. And there's a circularity there as well.
0: Yeah. In a traditional culture, you saw it every day that whoever was in need would receive. Whoever had more than they needed would give. Yeah. That's how hunter-gatherer cultures work, partly because possessions were a burden when you were nomadic. Yeah. So there was a lot of sharing, and because everybody shared, nobody needed to hoard. As soon as people start hoarding, then goods are no longer circulating, and everybody has to hoard. Mm-hmm. So in our current economy, it sure looks like it's very different from a hunter-gatherer economy. We have incredible polarization of wealth, tremendous poverty- Alongside obscene riches. And it sure looks like if you don't guard your own and save for retirement and keep your investments secure and so on and so forth, if you just gave it away, you would have nothing left because no one's going to give to you because everybody's out out there trying to get the best deal, trying to make the most money. And how do you make the money? You get it from other people. So, like, we're all on guard against each other. And it sure seems like that is, if not the law of the universe, certainly just the way of the world in our time. But there's another principle operating on a deeper level that tends to support and reward people who are deeply giving of their gifts to the world. Not always. It's not a guarantee. But in general, it's like a metaphysical principle because we are here to serve life and beauty on Earth. When we are doing that, we are supported in staying here. Like we're part of the agreement. And this verge is very close to law of attraction kind of stuff. Anyway, I'll I'll just offer that as a thing to contemplate.
2: I have a question for you related to that, because we actually have been experimenting with, I don't know if you've ever heard this Danella Meadows talk that she gave in the 90s at a conference in Costa Rica about envisioning. And she talked about how we spend a lot of time strategizing and executing, but we don't drop into our bodies and envision. And then she takes the audience through a very brief sit and asks them some questions to envision the future. So we've been experimenting with iterating on that here. And when I did mine, one of the key things that came up was this question. It was this notion of a, a community of people who, who had a sense of what was enough for them. You just indicated this, right? And once they reached that threshold, they gave to others But this to me felt like a core philosophical question that I'm holding when I think about the next society, next system. And I'm curious your thoughts about the answer to that question. It's like, how much is enough for one individual or one family, at which point you then would spill over and give to others? Or do you feel like it's an assessment of relative need given a situation that's more dynamic?
0: Well, it depends on your context
2: yeah I mean, I guess it's just in a particular community I, mean, I think Clearly about in a
0: community I... where people take care of each other than like a remote village in Madoc or something like that, then enough might be very little. but if you are completely dependent on money to meet all of your needs and forestall any emergency, any eventuality, then no amount is enough actually. You could have a billion dollars mm. but what if the financial system collapses and your portfolio craters? $2 to be a little safer, <laughs> just in case. So another thing is enough of what? Because yeah. right now in society, we have so many unmet needs, especially the need to belong, the need for connection for many people, the need for intimacy, the need to have authentic relationships with others, the need... To challenge your boundaries. Like all of these needs that are seldom met in modern society often get displaced onto money. And especially the need for security, which comes from actually belonging and connection. Mm -hmm. And when you are lacking that, you feel insecure. You feel like I'm not fully at home in the world. And so that need for security that's supposed to come from relationship displaced onto money. So how much money, ask yourself this, how much money is enough to meet your need for a full set of relationships? No amount is enough. I know. No amount is enough to meet the need for meaning in your life, to meet the need to be doing something meaningful to you for your life energy. And so people who are suffering that lack might distract themselves by playing the numbers game of making more money.
2: I appreciate that. And that was such an important point that you made again and again in the more beautiful world our hearts knows is possible that we're, we're trying to meet these deep fundamental human needs with these more superficial things like consumption or like substances. And yeah. it's, it's infinite because it's not actually meeting the underlying need.
0: Yeah. And it's not that we're bad and stupid for doing that. Like in various ways, sometimes the true object of the need is unavailable. It could be because of inner block, you know, trauma, could be because of poverty, could be just the way that that the infrastructure of society is built. So I just want to say that because it's important to avoid blaming ourselves and by extension, blaming other people for conditions that we are born into that are beyond our contrivance.
2: Mm -hmm. I want to ask, I have another sort of, frontier philosophical questions, I think, related to this gift question, and also related to what you're talking about, the digital economy, that I'm I'm really curious what your answer is. Because one of the things that you also talked about in terms of the gifts that we inherit, right, in the world is a gift, is the cultural history, the intellectual history. Are you familiar with the book, What Technology Wants, by Kevin Kelly? Uh-uh. So he talks about, there's a really potent one that's influenced both me and my husband a lot, but he talks about how the same ideas have cropped up repeatedly throughout history in different places and in many times when the ideas couldn't have traveled from one to the next. And the implication there is essentially that there's this, you know, there's an intellectual or cultural frontier that we inherit and then we naturally just creatively kind of connect the dots to the next idea. And it's very interesting to think about the implications of that. So one of the most potent things that you talked about in sacred economics relating to this is is that is an argument for universal basic income. Right. And then I think related to that, a question I'm holding is like, I think that has very interesting implications for intellectual property. And I'm thinking a lot about, okay, you have the container of something called a firm right? And then you have an assessment of what is an appropriate amount of extraction from the firm from my contribution, right? How can you assess, or how might you even begin to assess, like, what my contribution is to something, right? If you inherit your intellect as a gift or all this cultural context as a gift, clearly in today's society, we overweight the idea of an entrepreneur in looking at what the cap table looks like and how much value they extract from value that's created. I'm curious how you just think about a disproportionate extraction of value that's created and then extracted given the context of the inheritance of all of these the cultural and intellectual gifts does that make sense
0: yeah yeah so like let's take maybe elon musk for example there's no doubt that he is charismatic and brilliant and has like a certain power to what he says is going to happen people believe it's going to happen so he's definitely a, a gifted person but the operation of those gifts and therefore the wealth that he has accumulated is only possible in the context of really thousands of years of technological development and intellectual development. So in a sense, he's not the only one who has contributed to his wealth. His gifts are only operable in a context that relies on many, many, many other people's gifts. So another way to put it, I think I said it in the book, is like, which one of us deserves to benefit more from the inventions of James Watt or the contributions of James Clerk Maxwell or Nikola Tesla than anybody else. That is the collective inheritance of all of humanity. And it has allowed us tremendous wealth, which therefore should also belong to all of humanity.
2: Yeah. No, I thought that was a really potent point, but I am trying to get it. Okay, so let's say Elon Musk inherited, right, these gifts of, of charisma and intelligence. There's some amount of effort that went into cultivating those things and starting the company. And any entrepreneur will tell you it's, it's not the idea, it's about the execution. But I'm still kind of getting at this question of, I think in a society, you can justify some degree of inequality because of variation of effort. And I'm just curious how you think about that.
0: I mean, it's hard to say that, you know, whether he's put more effort into building Tesla Motors than just pick some wonderful kindergarten teacher who gets paid a very low salary, and but instead of just going through the motions, like really, really puts time and care far beyond the call of duty into her work. Which one of them is contributing more to humanity? There's right. no way to measure that.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. 100%. I also love so much what you said about the economies, about converting cultural, spiritual, natural capital into money.
0: Yeah, we could leapfrog into that if you want.
2: Oh, I just thought that was a really potent point that it made me think of that I wanted to get into. I want to more deeply explore the gifts. I want to talk a little bit more about your experience in living the gift.
0: What would you like to know about it?
2: Well, just tell me about the road, right? Because I know at some point you were not sure how you were going to pay the rent and you pursued this path. And at what point did it start to work?
0: Well, let's see. My first book... My first major book was The Ascent of Humanity, which I self-published in 2007. And I had, as I was finishing the chapters, I put them on on a website. I wrote a website for myself and put the chapters up there. And finally, the book was published. And I'm like, okay, I guess I better take down the the stuff on the website, because then no one's going to buy it if they can read it online. Maybe I leave the introduction up or something like that, make it a marketing site for the book. But when I went to do that, it just didn't feel right. I just, I had such a heavy heart. I'm like, hold on a second. I'm going to listen to my heavy heart and I'm just not going to take it down. I don't care. I just don't care. I'm just not taking it down. Mm. That was the start of my practice of gift economy. People are going to buy the book when they could read it online. They're actually giving me a gift in a sense. I mean, I suppose maybe they want a physical copy, but it was a little, a little step at least into business and the gift. And then, like, I think that this era of bankruptcy and being destitute, like I was really poor for a couple years, $2 in the bank kind of poor. I don't think that that's because I practiced gift and I was in that state because I was not selling hard. I think if I had done the promotional site version of it and took it down and everything, I still would have had minuscule sales of my self-published (laughs) 600-page book by a completely unknown author. I mean, what was I thinking (laughs) when I had these delusions that I was going to be rich and famous from publishing because the book's so brilliant and people are going to... That's not a very realistic plan, but I was young and naive, and I'm like, yeah, this is going to work. So I don't think it's because I did gift economics that that book was a total failure in conventional terms. Then I got a job as a uh, construction worker for like this artisanal builder, and did that for a while, and then I got a part-time teaching position at Goddard College, and that paid some of the bills for a little while. And then I started speaking more and more, doing more and more public speaking when I could, you know, instead of selling tickets, uh, just accepting whatever donations. And in doing that, I refined my languaging and refined also my psychology and began to work through these issues of fear and greed and resentment if people don't give and attachment to, like, there's a lot of Hmm. psychology that rises to the surface when you try this. Somebody says, Charles, this is an amazing retreat. I just paid $10,000 for a Tony Robbins retreat last month, and this was way better. Here's 50 bucks. (laughs) That kind of thing would happen, and I'd be like, ah. So over time, there's issues that come up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I just began doing more and more events that way. And it's not like I, if it's a professional conference somewhere and they pay their speakers an honorarium, I'm not going to reject it. But for my own events, whether online or in person, I don't charge money.
2: How do you think about the gift being given ex-ante or ex-post? I've been thinking about this a bit because I feel like we're accustomed to often the philanthropic ask is a cause. Right, and you're kind of you're sold on the cause, and you give before the impact actually has been had, versus giving on the back end where you have received, right, and then you have that inducement of a sense of gratitude and a desire to reciprocate. So, for example, with your courses, you're paying on the front end.
0: Well, people they can get a refund, and they can change. We have a way for them to change their tuition to modify it up or down. Yeah. But yeah, it is a bit more natural to pay on the back end. For my live events, I do that. Yeah.
2: I mean, in that model. Yeah.
0: Because that's the way gift exchange works. You receive a gift. And then then when it's your birthday, I, I give you a gift. So usually, and especially because gratitude motivates the return gift. And how do you know how grateful you will feel until after you've received the course or the seminar or whatever?
2: That's right. And I also am thinking about this in the context of just what we're accustomed to in the philanthropic space. And I do feel like a lot of times we... So many people are calling us, asking us for the money, even though we know or what we believe in. And just think that there is a, there's a psychology around it too, that I'm at least thinking of around just that we kind of shut down sometimes because there's so much solicitation for gifts coming from, from so many different places. But I guess there's a distinction here because you, again, you're paying afterwards, which I think is interesting. it sounds like it's worked out great for you.
0: I've learned a lot about how to do it. It's been quite a learning curve. And I believe that I can help others shorten that learning curve. I think that this business model is actually the business model of the future for at least for digital, any kind of digital product. And it works and I can train people to make it work.
2: Well, I'm following your footsteps and taking notes. But I think it's so potent, particularly when you think more deeply about the effect on relationships, the the transaction nature of of paying and getting in return. It turns on that part of your brain that says, like, is what I'm getting commensurate with what I've been priced? And it just kind of puts on a critical brain. And again, the circularity was just so amazing being at Burning Man. The camp that I'm in does this really big production of, of music and dance parties, You know, what really struck me, Charles, was that people said it wasn't even a desire to reciprocate a gift. The words that I heard repeatedly, and I'm curious if you heard these two, were in service and at your service.
0: Yeah, gift giving is not usually reciprocal. There are people in my life from whom I receive and receive and receive, and maybe give a token in in return, and maybe not. And then there are people in my life to whom I just give and their role is to receive for me. And sometimes they're like, Charles, you know, how can I repay you? I'm like, no, 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 you're not supposed to repay me. You're supposed to pay it forward someday. Someday you'll be in my situation or in a similar situation. And it's just like in a traditional culture where you might receive from certain kin and, and give to other kin according to elaborately prescribed rules. But and I think like kind of karmically, it's like that too. There are certain people like, forget ever trying to pay them back. They're just here as this beneficent presence in your life. And there are others who you just recognize as, yeah, I'm supposed to take care of this person. So it's not reciprocal usually. It's like this gigantic circle, like an ecology, like an ecosystem. The bees that pollinate the flowers, well, they get something reciprocal from the flower. But there's a lot of relationships where it's a long circle before it gets back to the initial gifter, like the elephant dies and its rotting corpse nourishes plant life and that plant life nourishes something else and something else. And eventually it comes back to something that nourishes the elephant.
2: How do you think about boundary conditions or what happens at the boundaries between gift and market economies?
0: Can you be a little bit more specific, like give an example?
2: Yeah, no, I'm just thinking about this, like, like again, take Burning Man as an example. I think it's pretty interesting Burning Man has this principle of decommodification. And in the container of the event, everything is a gift other than buying ice and coffee, (laughs) right? But Burning Man was like really to fully embody that. They wouldn't, I mean, they're commodifying Burning Man by virtue of selling tickets, right? And there was this big upheaval about selling art to fundraise at Sotheby's, commodifying Burning Man itself and its art, but at the same time, right, we, we don't have a global gift economy, so there needs to be capital for employees to then go spend out in the, the market economy, right?
0: Right. And I think that Burning Man could do it in a different way. Yeah. I think that they could have ticket prices that are not fixed and take the bold step of trusting people to pay the amount that's good and right for them. Yeah. And I think they would actually make more money that way.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> We could experiment.
0: See, there's this, this is that, that fallacy that I mentioned at the very beginning. The idea that if you step into gift, you're going to make less money. Yeah. It's not always true.
2: Yeah. But
0: you have to fully step into a reality in which you are okay with getting less. Yeah. In the gift, there's always the letting go. In any true gift, you're letting go of something and you don't know. You have no guarantee. You're not in control of the return gift the form it's going to take, or even if it is going to come back to you. Mm-hmm. It's a release. The most distilled example of that would be the sacrifice, the offering. If you burn tobacco or scatter cornmeal, say, in an indigenous society, like that seems like a rather insignificant gesture, but you have to remember like corn and tobacco take a lot of effort and time to grow. Like they are a precious substance and there you are scattering it to the wind. Hmm. But there's a faith. It is kind of like you said about Burning Man, like in service, in service, in service. And it is that it usually does come back to you in Hmm. the form of blessings, but you're not doing it because it comes back to you in the form of blessings. And the more you let go of that because, the more it comes back to you.
2: Yeah. I wanted to just ask you one last question about synchronicity as it relates to this letting go.
0: Synchronicity is a form of gift from the universe because synchronicity is something meaningful that you didn't make happen. It's not something that that you forced to happen that you could have predicted would have happened. So if you didn't make it happen, then it's a gift. It just happened. And like other kinds of gift. In fact, just what I was speaking about, this letting go that opens the channel and that shape shifts you into the world that operates according to gift principles. Synchronicity is the same. Usually people experience more synchronicity when they are in an in-between place in their life, when they've let go of certainty and control, when they've just moved to a new city, when they've just left a relationship, where they've just left a job, where they're traveling. Where they haven't arranged their hotel that night and then something happens. And one reason that people experience a lot of synchronicity at Burning Man and and at transformational festivals is that they are not in their familiar matrix of control. Even to go into those spaces, you're letting go of something. And that gift, that letting go is a gift in a sense to the universe. And it invites its reciprocation. Mm.
2: Charles, thank you so much. There's so many really, really critical and important things to draw out of your work in the context of, of our overarching inquiry. And so I just so deeply appreciate your time. I really just have been so impacted by your work in general and specifically with respect to the gift economy stuff that we drew out today.
1: Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to Scott Hansen, also known as Tycho, for our musical signature. In addition to this podcast, you can find resources for each episode on our website, www.becomingdenizen.com, including transcripts and background materials. For our most essential topics like universal basic income, decentralized social media, and long-term capitalism, we also have posts summarizing our research, which make it easy for listeners to very quickly get an overview of these particularly important and foundational topics. On our website, you can also sign up for our newsletter where we bring our weekly podcast to your inbox alongside other relevant denizen information. Subscribers are invited to join our podcast recordings and engage with the denizen community in our online home. The Den. We're partnered with some incredible organizations at the forefront of the change that we talk about. We share announcements from them in our newsletter as well. Finally, this podcast is made possible by support from the Denizen community and listeners like you. Denizen's content will always be free. Offering Denizen as a gift models a relational rather than a transactional economy, enabling Denizen to embody the change that we talk about on this podcast. Through the reciprocity of listeners like you, that we were able to continue producing this content. You can support us or learn more about our gift model on our website. Again, that's www.becomingdenizen.com. Thanks again for listening and I hope you'll join us next time.